Welcome to the Alpha Human Podcast. I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg, and with us today is John Little. John is an author and filmmaker and is considered to be one of the world's foremost authorities on Bruce Lee, his training methods, and his philosophies. John was actually selected by the Bruce Lee estate as the only person who has ever been authorized to review the entirety of Lee's personal notes, his sketches, his reading annotations. And John directed, wrote, and produced the notable documentaries, Bruce Lee in his own words, and Bruce Lee, A Warrior's Journey for Warner Brothers, as well as authoring the book, The Warrior Within, The Philosophies of Bruce Lee. John also produced the documentaries Ayn Rand, in her own words, and The Making of the Fountainhead, by a Warner Brothers film uh, based on Rand's legendary novel. Now, John is also very well known in the world of fitness and bodybuilding, having penned numerous articles for Joe Weider uh, and Muscle and Fitness, Flex Magazine back in the day, and has written some of the most well-respected books on the subject of high-intensity training, including Body by Science, Power Factor Training, and more recently, The Time Savers Workout. However, some of John's most notable efforts in the world of bodybuilding stem from his time spent working with and as a close friend of Mike Menser, the legendary golden era pro bodybuilder from the late 70s and 80s, who was the only Mr. Olympia competitor to ever get a perfect score of 300 in winning the heavyweight class at the 1979 Mr. Olympia. John authored the book, The Wisdom of Mike Menser, and co-authored the book, High Intensity Training, The Mike Menser Way, with Menser himself. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Lawrence. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Fantastic. You know, um, there, there are some subjects that I'm so interested in speaking with you about, namely uh, some of the things we just mentioned right there in your introduction, um, of which, by the way, um, there's some things I left out. We can get into that as well. I know you're a, a massive uh, philosophy buff and student. I know you own uh, uh, a gym with all, the, uh, with all the original Nautilus equipment. So there's, there's lots to talk about, but yeah. Bruce Lee, Mike Menser, and Ayn Rand. I mean, who, you know, it's almost like a joke, right? Bruce Lee, Mike Menser, and Ayn Rand walk into a bar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, these are three monumental characters from different realms and different spectrums that I keep seeing um, over the years. I'm, I'm a fan of, a massive fan of all three. I'm a huge fan of Ayn Rand and Mike Menser. Uh, and, you know, there's, there just seems to be a weird intersection or nexus uh, with those three individuals. And I believe that that, that nexus um, is philosophy. And it also might be because um, the three of them kind of came to fame around the same time. Um, well, Ayn Rand probably earlier on, of course, but she really, I mean, as a philosopher and a, and a, and a writer, I think she right. really started coming into her own around uh, the 70s and the 80s. But, you know, again, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I know she wrote uh, Atlas Shrugged uh, that, that came out in the 50s. So 
She was clearly right. a thought leader even back then. But and I would add as well that I think all three are iconoclasts, and I think that that uh, differentiates them from the rest of the people in their respective fields at the time. I mean, Menser was certainly a maverick in bodybuilding, and Bruce Lee was thus in martial arts, and Ayn Rand certainly uh, was iconoclastic in, in uh, philosophy. And so they, they shared that perspective that uh, they were going to do things their own way and that they were their only authority in, in matters of thought and how they should behave in terms of their respective uh, fields. Um, Bruce Lee was certainly a, a buck tradition. You know, he didn't, uh, uh, he didn't believe in tradition at all when it came to martial arts. Mm. And Mike Menser didn't either. Um, uh, you know, I was, it's funny, you know, I was, <laughs> of all topics, your, your timing is good because I've been researching the 1980 Mr. Olympia as of late. Oh. And uh, looking at what Arnold's methods were, which essentially Arnold trained the way he did because Reg Park trained that way. Uh, and that was his mentor and his idol. So we just did whatever Reg did. Okay. And Mike Menser's approach was, you know, that, that's just tradition. That's, your, that's ritual. You know, isn't, isn't there a better way to do this? Do we need to do 20 sets of body parts? Do we need to go into the gym twice a day, six to seven days a week for two hours, two and a half hours at a time in order to build muscle? Is that, is that really the requirements? Mm. And he was fortunate, of course, to befriend another maverick by the name of Arthur Jones. And... Uh, Jones categorically uh, established and proved to Mike that, no, you didn't need to be spending that kind of time in the gym. And Mike dove in and took that even further, uh, which to me was fascinating. And, and Bruce Lee was of a similar mindset in the sense that he thought outside of the box. Uh, if he had been a traditionalist like Arnold was, Mm -hmm. uh, he would have just simply continued with his base, what they call his base art, some do anyway, of Wing Chun. Uh, Yip Man in Hong Kong was his first and really only uh, martial arts instructor. But he, you know, he, he had to discover things on his own. And that's what he did. And so what he ended up with was, you know, a pretty far distance from what you would consider to be Wing Chun Kung Fu. So, um, okay, this is great, um, because I actually want to start off and all the topics you just mentioned, I want to ask you about um, a bit deeper. But um, perfect segue to talk about Bruce Lee. Um, and, you know, if, again, you know, just from a, that nexus of philosophy, all three are iconoclasts. Yeah. What was, what was Bruce Lee's, you know, everyone knows Bruce Lee as the legendary martial artist, but, you know, he was, um, I, I, I believe he's probably an autodidact. Um, and he was, a probably a bit of a genius in many different things, but, he was also a philosopher, or he, he certainly studied philosophy as much as he start, studied martial arts. What was Lee's philosophy? Well, um, it's funny. I've written books about it, but it's very difficult to put in a sentence. Um, his philosophy was uh, similar to uh, Abraham Maslow's psychology. It was about self-actualization and to know yourself and to express yourself and to find out what you are capable of, um, as opposed to just going through a little sausage factory, like a lot of educational 
institutions are uh, and getting a piece of paper that says that in someone else's eyes, you, you know, you have become a knowledgeable person. His thought was, well, his own quote was, all knowledge ultimately means self-knowledge. And um, that was an interesting quote. And I remember hearing that really before, to me, it was an abstraction. I didn't quite, I couldn't hook into it somehow. Right. Until I interviewed his son, Brandon Lee, shortly before his untimely passing. And I asked him a question that had always irked me about the martial arts. And that was a so-called spiritual component to the martial arts. Um, you know, we, we always hear in some of the, the Eastern disciplines about mind, body, spirit, but they never define these things. Um, and so I asked him, I said, do you think there is a spiritual aspect in the martial arts? And he said, yes. But then he provided me a definition that I could accept and live with. He said, when one heads down the road towards self-mastery or mastery of any craft, he said, let's say martial arts, you're going to encounter obstacles that are going to throw themselves in your path as you continue your journey. And he said, and how you deal with those obstacles, how you deal with overcoming them successfully or being set back by them can reveal to you a lot about you, yourself. He said, if you're open to that experience. And he said, in that respect, he believed that the term spiritual had to do with what you learn about yourself, your character, your person. Um, it doesn't have to be imbued with a mystical term like a soul, but it's, mm -hmm. it's just about you. And what's interesting is Mike Menser also defined spirit as that part of you which allows you to know yourself. So I think, you know, without getting too abstract, that, that a lot of it has to do with you, your relationship to the world, your relationship with the environment, with the society, with your, uh, with your chosen profession, or even with your passion, whatever your interest is. But it's not just going and doing it and then forgetting about it for another week. It's what did it mean to you? What did you learn from that? What was the experience? How did that, did it leave anything with you? And as you know, a lot of our day-to-day -day interactions, the you'll have a different experience tomorrow than I will, let's say. Mm -hmm. And consequently, that will leave an imprint on you of some sort. You liked what happened, you didn't like what happened, you thought maybe this could change. And, and every human being on this planet has these experiences, and, and they're all unique to that human being. And that's, you know, what you learn from that, it, you learn about yourself. You learn what you like. You learn what you don't like. You learn what you'll stand for. You learn what you'll tolerate and what you won't. And But again, if you don't take the lessons that these opportunities give to you, then you know, you're just a mirror that just, you know, whatever passes in front of it, you reflect it briefly and then wait for something else to reflect. So there's, there's nothing uh, tangibly um, meaningful uh, about, about your, your very existence, you know, your, your whole... <laughs> your whole life could be a, a, a fraud in some respects if you, don't, if you don't really learn who you are in all of this. And of course, to tie into your original uh, suggestion that there was a philosophical underpinning connecting those three people, mm -hmm. um, you know, Ayn Rand was, uh, was of a similar mindset, not in terms of spirit, but in terms of, of yourself. You know, it's, it's about 
you. I mean, the whole virtue of selfishness is about you, you know, and, and what, what you have to determine what is in your best interest, what's for you, what's against you. Is it in your best interest to, uh, you know, trot over other people's rights uh, like some sort of brute? Or is it more in your interest to, you know, live in a civilized society and get along with people and, and, and do things like that? It has to do with rational self-interest or enlightened self-interest, perhaps might be a better term. Right. There's definitely a, um, uh, she makes a, quite a distinction with respect to um, self-interest, ration, it's rational self-interest, yeah. right? Um, so a lot of people get that wrong when they see the title of her book. Almost everybody gets it wrong, yeah. Yeah, virtue of selfishness, but... Um, Not sacrificing yourself, sacrificing yourself to others or, or having others sacrifice themselves to you. That's right. the that, touchstone exactly. of objectivist thought, yeah. The, 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 the truly selfish want others to sacrifice themselves uh, you know, for them. And that, that's, that's real selfishness. But, um, I want to get into, I definitely want to get into ransom more, but mm. back on, back on Bruce Lee for a moment. So, um, I understand that Bruce Lee's study of philosophy yeah. uh, is what is, you know, kind of like you said, caught, you know, just like Menser kind of questioned the tradition of volume training that everyone was doing that Arnold was doing. Um, you know, Bruce Lee's study of philosophy kind of caused him also to question why uh, most martial artists seemed more concerned with preserving traditions rather right. than, right, rather than looking more deeply to find, I think, absolutely. Looking, yeah, absolutely. Right? He, what did he, he said he was looking to find or that they weren't willing to look for the ultimate truth of martial art. What is that? The, the, I'm sorry, did you say, he said, don't look for the ultimate truth? No, no, no. I said that um, he was like, he was, that he noticed how so many martial artists of the time were more concerned with preserving tradition than with looking to find what he called the ultimate truth of martial arts. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, yeah. do, do you have- Well, he used to say that, that, that the truth lies outside of any fixed system because it lies in the individual explorer, the one who's exploring this uh, martial way. So, um, uh, yeah, no, Bruce, Bruce Lee was not a traditionalist. He considered every style in the martial arts, uh, what would be the synonym, a cage. Every style is a cage. And the reason is because a style defines itself by telling you what it doesn't do, what it's not. Rest, like if you're doing judo, you're not doing kicking. So they don't do that in judo. Right. You're doing grappling, you're doing arm bars, you're doing chokes. And if you start throwing kicks, well, whatever it is you're doing, it's not judo. You know, so that's the tradition they preserve. Similarly, if you are a boxer, you're gonna use your hands, jab, cross, hook, uppercut. You're not gonna knee somebody, you know, like a Muay Thai fighter might. Mm. Um, that's not in the style, if you will. And um, in certain other styles like like uh, karate or uh, certain styles of kung fu, there is no grappling. You know, last place in the world you want to go is down on the ground. You know, and and so to him it was like anything that restricts you. You can't do this. You can't do that. You, that's restricting human expression because you have four limbs and a head, and you know you can you can use all of these as weapons if the opportunity presents itself. And in a case of life and death, 
that might be the difference between life and death, is not adhering to the style, which only works under these certain restrictions and rules, and a cooperation with the other fellow who's practicing it, or, or a lady who's practicing it. Um, it. It has to do with total freedom. And the, the weird thing about martial arts is you can't predict how you are going to be attacked. Mm. So you can't have a, a rehearsed routine for dealing with this. Um, especially in this day and age. And even Bruce Lee knew that back in the 70s. I mean, if you look at uh, his famous line from End of the Dragon, when he's recruited to go to Han's Island to take part in this martial arts tournament and bring down the evil Han, he right. says, why don't you just pull out 45, you know, and settle it, you know, shoot somebody. And uh, he also said in an interview with Pierre Burton, he said, you know, you don't go around on the street kicking people and punching people these days. He said, because if you do, somebody's going to pull out a gun. And it, you know, it doesn't matter how good your Kung Fu is, it's not going to stop the bullet. So right. the idea is you have to do what, you can't restrict yourself. And the, and the way he trained was that his movements were reflexive, like, like uh, echo to sound. So that he didn't even know how he was going to respond until the situation presented itself. So his, what kind of turned him off was people that would do the, and you still see it all over the internet now, um, people doing, you know, some a student will come in with a, an overhand strike and the teacher will block it and then he'll do this and then he'll do that and then he'll do this and the other guy's just standing there, you know, and that never happens in a fight. You know, I mean, if you ever have ever been in a real fight or have witnessed a real fight, I mean, it is pandemonium. There's no stasis involved in a, in a real fight. So all these moves look wonderful on, you know, on the internet, but right. They're, they're useless. So his whole thing was a style is a cage. And so get rid of the cages. And some people have misinterpreted that to mean study a whole bunch of different styles. But that just means go into a whole bunch of different cages. Doesn't, you haven't liberated yourself from any of them. So, so he, um, okay, so speaking about his fighting style, you, you know, in, in that film, in that same film, Enter the Dragon, he's asked, um, what's, your, what's your style? And he said, um, you can call it, uh, the art of fighting without fighting, yeah. the art of fighting without fighting. <laughs> mm. so what is, I mean, what does that mean? Well, it just means using, I mean, my interpretation of it is simply that a human being's greatest weapon is not his fist or his foot. It's his brain. I ran a degree and that is what, that's our means of survival. It's our means of self-defense. In fact, our brain is what informs our movements even in the martial arts. So it is our, our, our strongest weapon that we possess for self-defense. Um, we don't have claws like a tiger. We don't have the power of an elephant. We have a brain. And if you use your brain, you should be able to avoid conflict before it starts. Bruce Lee taught a um, woman self-defense class back in Seattle in the very early 1960s. Okay. And most of what he counseled um, his students in that class was simply to use your brain, you know, walk on the illuminated side of the street. Don't go in the shadows. Don't, don't walk into an area where there is no escape. If you happen to be attacked, go for the most vulnerable, you know, you know areas that are open, eyes, groin, throat, and then run like hell. And to me, that is the soundest piece of self-defense advice I've ever heard. 
You don't have to go to a class three or four days a week to learn that. And if you use your brain, you know, just almost instinctively, if there's a potential for trouble, you walk into a bar, let's say, and suddenly you get looks or something. Maybe it's time to go out, you know, turn around and leave. Because there's just, there's nothing in today's day and age when you use your brain that justifies getting in a fight with somebody. There's nothing. It's, if you are successful and defend yourself, but the other fellow gets hurt, you're, at very least, you're, you're going to be sued, and at the very most, you could be in jail. And, or he could be dead, you know, or, you know, or you could be dead. Like I say, you can't predict, no matter how much you train, uh, how you're going to be attacked. If you train Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and you're very, very good at it, mm-hmm. and you're, you're good at getting people down on the ground and getting them to tap out, that's wonderful. And if you engage with a, an opponent outside in a bar or in the street, and you get them down, you, you might well get them to tap out, but you hope you do so before six buddies come over because then you're, got, you're done, you know? And I speak from experience on that one, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's one of these things where, you know, avoid it. There's, there's no upside to violence at all. And to me, the art of fighting without fighting is to use your strongest weapon, your brain, to ascertain the potential danger in an area or in an environment and avoid that area. Or, or extricate yourself from that environment. So, um, yeah, you know, and again, there's that, you know, that, uh, that link with, with Ayn Rand and, and, you know, the, the mind being really your, you know, everything um, in defining yourself uh, and your being. And, um, you know, again, there's just these these parallels that we find in Rand and, and Lee and, and Mensah. Yeah. I think in people that try to look beyond superficial um, barriers or mores, we'll, we'll tend to see um, truth, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, what they see is something that isn't true, but at least that's a, a lesson. That's one more off the list, you know, of what... What is true? Well, cra- cra- I mean, t- crazily enough, talking about what is and isn't true. I mean, that was that was something that he railed against as well with respect to just. I mean, even the way tournaments were being. Do- I didn't know this. Watching your documentary, um, I learned that uh, in that period of time when Lee was uh, in the states, uh, that tournaments, whether they martial arts tournaments were non-contact and that they yeah. were, right? They were all just yeah. um, a, a routine and the points were given from what the judges thought, um, oh, oh, that fake kick that didn't connect, that would have probably hurt and yeah. so, or damaged the opponent. So we're gonna give yeah. you points for that. But they, there was no contact. No, there was no contact at all. And in fact, you were penalized for contact. So, I mean, it's kind of funny. I remember interviewing, um, a martial artist by the name of Bill Wallace. He was known as Superfoot. Superfoot. Yeah. And um, Bill Wallace was probably, well, is my favorite karate guy. I, I've just always liked Bill Wallace. And uh, my dad and I went and saw him fight in Toronto. He fought uh, a Frenchman, actually. And my dad was big into boxing. And he, okay. he, while the kicking was nice, my dad liked his hands. He said, hey, he's a boxer. That guy's taking boxing but anyway, Bill Wallace, I was working at, uh, uh, for Curtis Wong at uh, Inside Kung Fu magazine for a while. Okay. And uh, Bill Wallace happened to come into the building. And I was like, wow, 
you know, I want to talk to this guy, you know, and, and so I brought him into an office. He was very nice and spoke to me. And I asked him, uh, I said, now you have a son. I, he may have more than one child. I don't know. But at the time I knew he had a son. I said, and I said, you have a background in wrestling, in karate, full contact karate. I don't know if he has judo. He might. But anyway, he was a very well-rounded martial artist and a world champion. I mean, he did the point system. And because of how fast his feet were, he won multiple world championships. But he was the first one to tell me. He said, I asked him, I said, wow, you won uh, X amount of world championships. He said, yeah. He goes, well, what's that mean? I said, well, it means you won these world championships. He said, no, no, no. He goes, you got to understand. He said, back in those days, he said, I could go to Chicago and fight four guys from Chicago and win the world championship. He said, it didn't, it was nothing. It was just who happened to show up at the tournament that time. Wow. So, uh, so he said, you know, those, those titles didn't mean much. And then he carried that into full contact uh, kickboxing or karate, as it was called back in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. And he, he was awesome in that. I mean, he, not only did, his, did he have nice technique, which he used in his point karate days, but he was lethal when he was in the ring with the, the speed of his, of his limbs, you know, and, and the agility. Um, but I asked him, I said, you have this, you have a son. I said, you've been through all these martial arts. What would you teach him if you wanted, if you wanted to teach him how to defend himself, you know, when he goes to school or whatever. And he said, well, first of all, he said, you've got to understand there's a distinction between martial arts and self-defense. He goes, they're two different things. Right. He said, and then his advice to his son, he said, hit him in the soft spots, groin, eyes, throat, and run. Same thing that Bruce Lee taught his students was self-defense. So that's the thing. I remember when I when the Kung Fu boom came out in the in 73, I was 12 years old. Okay. And I was gaga over it. I mean, I had to learn this art that I see David Carradine practicing on TV and how he's just very calm and people are flying and and it was reinforced because Wide World of Sports was carrying martial arts demos at Madison Square Garden. And you know, one guy would show you how he dispatched hand and some you know choreographed thing. We didn't know that. It was like, wow, this guy's amazing. And then, you know, the topper was the guy that caught bullets in his teeth, you know, that were fired at him. Um, but anyway, uh, I took uh studied martial arts formally and, and enrolled in a uh, a corner karate studio, of which there were they were everywhere back. And I remember hitting it diligently because in my mind, that's how Bruce Lee trained. He, it was hours and hours and hours every day in order to you know, become the way Bruce Lee became. Mm -hmm. And I was about seven months into it of seven days a week, four or five hours, six hours a day at the dojo. And I remember thinking to myself during one of the classes, I'm training for a fight that I know I'm never going to have. So what is the point of this? You know, like I'm putting in hours, more hours than a prize fighter would put in and they get paid for it, you know, and I was doing it to become this lethal martial artist and, uh, right. And it was, and it, it just dawned on me, I'm training for something that is never going to happen. So why am I, isn't there something else I can be investing this time? In? And then when I spoke to, you know, people like Bill Wallace or I read the papers that Bruce wrote that just, uh, cemented my initial uh, uh, supposition, I suppose, of that. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, again, just so, so again, you know, speaking of how these, you know, these ideas, um, you know, these, these things we hold up as uh, fascinations of ours, um, they, they start to, to create these false realities that people mm. love to live in. They form traditions around them. And then you get an iconoclast like Bruce Lee, it, it, you know, even, even with, um, I understand he was uh, disgusted with the martial arts, uh, martial arts films and the martial arts film industry, because it was all of this. Uh, I mean, it's actually gone back to that, but it was yeah, all yeah. like, like unrealistic uh, flying around the air and right. Yeah. Uh, and he wanted to bring like, he wanted to bring realism into martial arts films. Like what would really happen if he was, if he was going to yeah. fight someone, what it would look like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, he still was able to manage or the, the marriage of uh, art and um, commerce or reality and, and commerce. I mean, his films were exciting to watch, but yet they were, they were grounded in reality. There was no superhuman stuff or very little. When he had a say in it, there was none of that. I mean, I think he had a, a jump up into a tree and end with a dragon, which he didn't want to do, but the producer said, do it for the, the Hong Kong audience. Mm -hmm. And in his first movie, The Big Boss, he hits a guy against the side of an ice shed and leaves a perfect outline of the guy on the thing. And those were not his idea of, of a good martial arts sequence. But at the time, the director, Wei, in that case, thought that, he knew what the audience wanted. They want the super, the Superman type stuff. Right. But Bruce was trying to get away from that. So, so speaking about um, his training, so he was tra um, his training of of uh, students. Uh, you mentioned uh, you know training for self defense. Right. Um, the I understand that the martial arts community, the the American and the Chinese martial arts community of the time. They, they resented his iconoclastic style. They saw him as a, a young, cocky guy thumbing his nose at thousands of years of tradition. Right. Uh, and um, he, was he was considered a threat to the status quo. He was teaching, uh, if I've, you know, Kung Fu, basically, to, to non-Chinese students, right? And right. that, like, he was teaching Chinese martial arts to non-Chinese students, and that was, like, verboten. And... Um, I understand that at some point he received a challenge, right, from from the Chinese martial arts community in San Francisco. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that challenge and what you know what happened. Well, it's uh, it's a it's become a very famous fight, and it was it wasn't it wasn't even his most impressive encounter. You know, it was it, it was a significant fight in that the martial artist that he faced was in fact representing the the Chinese martial art, traditional martial art interests from San Francisco. And uh, Bruce had just opened the school in Oakland. Mm -hmm. And um, he had a partner by the name of James Lee in the enterprise, no relation, uh, but James Lee was a student of Bruce's as well. And there's some conflicting reports. There's been at least, well, I know there's one, two, two books written on it, uh, just on that fight. Okay. Uh, one is Showdown in San Francisco, and the other is, oh, I should remember this. It's the most recent one, um, Striking Distance, I think it's called, um, right. where they examine it. Um, so here's, here are the various theories that I'll try to run through the funnel here. 
Okay. The one that Linda Lee told me, Linda Lee Cadwell, was that... And that was his wife? That was his wife, yeah. Right. She, she was uh, eight months pregnant at the time when a group of about six Chinese martial artists showed up at Bruce's school, or Kuhn, in uh, Oakland. And they presented him with a scroll, which was a challenge. And her interpretation of it was that they had told him to shut down the school and quit teaching the Guaylo, the white devils, the Caucasian people. That, uh, and that really was an attitude that was very strong uh, amongst the Chinese martial arts community. I mean, even Bruce Lee's master in Hong Kong, Yip Man, mm -hmm. uh, thought it was strictly for the protection of the Chinese people. So, you know, the old adage, you never give your enemy the, the sword to cut your throat. That's, uh, that's kind of how they viewed it, because they viewed, well, a lot of these Westerners are bigger than us to begin with, like they're taller of a bigger stature. Why would you give them our, you know, we cultivated over hundreds of years, you know, you're just, you're making us vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So anyway, uh, this fellow came in with uh, the representative, his name is Wong Jackman, and, uh, and his five associates, they came from San Francisco over to Oakland. And Bruce said, okay, let's get it on. You know, and they, it was just Bruce and this guy. But according to Linda, as soon as the fight started, Wong Jackman basically recognized that he was outgunned pretty quickly and turned and, and, and tried to escape. Not, not to go out the front door, but just to get away from Bruce, you know? And so they, there was a change room which had one door, you go in it, but there was another door to bring it out. And it was like a Three Stooges routine. I mean, Bruce was chasing him around and hitting him. And, and then finally um, got him up against, near the door, there was like a little, um, it was like a bay window in the door and it, and it had a little uh, dip, I guess, in the, or partition, the semi-partition. And the guy tripped over and went down. And of course, Bruce was on top of him and, and basically kept pounding him and saying, do you submit in Cantonese? And the guy finally said, yes, I do. And he was taken away. That was the version that first came out. Okay. And it came out and was published in Linda Lee's book called Bruce Lee, The Man Only I Knew. Um, and it's the version that she confirmed to me. Okay. I spoke with um, Bruce's students from Oakland, a, guy, a fellow by the name of Alan Joe and another one by the name of George Lee. And they confirmed that that's what happened. Uh, and they, were, they weren't present at the time, but Bruce told them immediately afterwards. And then a student of Wong Jack Man decided he was writing a book. First, it was a, an article in a, one of the karate magazines long, about two or three years after Bruce had died, where, no, 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 it wasn't anything like that. It was, you know, number one, you know, Wong Jack Man held back. He didn't even use his most lethal killer techniques uh, out of, you know, just because that's the kind of gentleman that he was. And, Bruce overreacted and was hot-headed and tried to scratch his eyes out. And, uh, this guy could have killed him if he wanted to. He got him in a position and you know, had this dreaded strike ready to unleash on him, but uh, for one reason or another, he didn't. And apparently, from their version, the fight went on for 20 minutes. Right. And it had nothing to do with uh, Bruce teaching foreign students. It had to do with Bruce... Um, giving a demonstration at a theater in San Francisco to announce um, the opening of a martial arts school. Bruce was like the halftime show. He'd come out and do a little demo and then say, hey, if you're interested in you know, Kung Fu, uh, you know, come back to my, uh, my school in Oakland, be happy to teach you. But apparently that was taken as a threat or a challenge to the established Chinese uh, 
martial arts in San Francisco. So they didn't want to let that go, and they selected a guy to go and fight him. And apparently, this, uh, according to that version, it went on for 20 minutes, and then eventually there was no clear winner, and they kind of petered out, and this guy went home, and and uh, that was that. But um, Matthew Pauly, who recently wrote a biography on Bruce Lee called A Life, interviewed one of the guys that was there with the opponent, Wong Jack Man. Mm -hmm. And he said that pretty much uh, it was a result of Bruce saying something in this theater which offended the Chinese uh, martial arts community. But the, the fight was pretty much as Linda had described. It was over very quickly. It lasted, I would doubt it went more than a minute and a half um, before Bruce got him down and then they took him away and he uh, you know, didn't, didn't come back to Bruce's school ever again. But he also revealed that this fellow was wearing studded bracelet <coughs> under his Kung Fu jacket, which is kind of like having loaded gloves in a boxing match. But uh, so, you know, he may have spared Bruce the lethal killing kicks and the... Uh, I think we lost you there. So we had a bit of a snafu there. Uh, we lost John, uh, not for a few minutes or for a few hours, but a whole day. Uh, <laughs> John, what, what happened? A, to a tornado came into town, knocked out the power. Yeah, mini tornado that blew through our town, and uh, it was like a monsoon outside. So uh, all the power went out. It was out for about eight or nine hours. Uh, came back on, actually, about 3.30 this morning. So wow. unfortunately, it uh, interrupted our discussion. So, Well, we're, we're back, and uh, we can get uh, right into the... Uh, you know, the nub of this thing, because we were, we, we had we're just, on a roll. We were, yeah, on, a we were roll. on a roll. We were on a roll. We had just finished talking about um, the challenge that Bruce Lee was faced with by um, the, the martial arts community in San Francisco, who was not, who, who were none too happy about him uh, training uh, non-Chinese, the Chinese martial arts. And, and we talked about those three different versions that, you know oh so well about what actually happened in the challenge, but any way you slice it, at the end of the day, uh, Bruce Lee won the challenge. Doesn't matter whose version you heard, Bruce Lee uh, whooped some ass and, and he won that challenge. And I gotta say, I, you know, that must have been just an absolute, uh, just a cross, just, I mean, a, a, a uh, kind of like um, sticking in the craw of the martial arts orthodoxy in, in San Francisco that, that they, they put probably what they thought was their best man against Bruce Lee and, and he takes care of business and now they're humiliated. And so, I mean, you know, there's a lot of speculation. I, 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 you know, you're the expert, so, you know, let's put it to rest. Do you think that you know, his, 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 his untimely death, do you think that it was nefarious? Um, and if you could, I mean, I, I know the, you know, the, um, uh, the story surrounding his death, he ended up being given, you know, his, his mistress supposedly, or the, the, the woman he was starring in, you know, was going to be starring in a film with was, uh, gave him uh, supposedly an analgesic. Uh, next thing you know, an hour later, he's dead, but you're the expert. Do you think there was anything nefarious about his death? Um, well, two parts to that. First is I can't, I can't 
say that I'm an authority on that subject. Um, when I did my work with the estate, I was really focused on what Bruce did while he was alive. So okay. July 20th, 1973 uh, was when his story ended um, in terms of you know, producing and, and, and contributing to martial arts and film, etc. But like most people, I mean, how can you not be intrigued by the sudden death of a fellow at the age of 32 hmm. uh, who was in the peak of physical condition by, by appearances anyway? And um, what I try to do is listen to the uh, various versions that people have advanced over the years and see if they're reasonable. And um, one and all, I can't say that any of the conspiracy theories tend to hold up. Okay. Um, for example, I'll give you one example. They said that Raymond Chow, his production partner, uh, had him killed because Bruce was threatening to take some of his stuntmen and head to the United States to uh, begin his international film career. And that would have represented a huge loss to Raymond Chow. And so he stepped in and had Bruce taken care of. Mm -hmm. There's a few problems with that. Um, first and foremost is that they had just completed Enter the Dragon. And Raymond Chow had put a lot of his own money into it. Okay. Uh, Bruce was scheduled to appear on uh, the Johnny Carson show and to do some heavy international promotion uh, for the film, which would make money wow. not just for Warner Brothers, but for Raymond Chow. So for him to kill the Golden Goose um, before sense. he earned his money back, before the release of the film, um, seems a bad business decision from a man who was a very good businessman. Okay. Um, and I was with, uh, actually interestingly enough, I was with Dr. Doug McGuff, who was my co-author on the book, Body by Science. Mm -hmm. uh, this was, oh, six, seven years ago. We went to Fiji. Uh, Tony Robbins had flown us out uh, to do a, a television program with him. Okay. And we got to talking while they were setting up uh, cameras and things like that. And I was, he was asking me about Bruce Lee and how he died. And I said, well, the official cause of death was accidental death um, death by misadventure, technically they called it, because he was hypersensitive to an ingredient in uh, equagesic, which was the analgesic you referred to. It's like a super aspirin, basically. Okay. Which, which uh, this woman, Betty Ting Pei, had given him uh, because he'd complained of a headache. And he said, was it cerebral edema he died from right away? And I said, yeah, sudden swelling of the brain, cerebral edema, that's what he died from. He goes, well... That's why they pulled that particular brand off the shelves. It did cause that effect in some people. Wow. So, you know, in other medical people I've spoken to, they, they are not as flummoxed by uh, cerebral edema as a cause of death as most of the fans were. You know, for someone like Bruce Lee, you think it would have to be a, some massive army that took him out or something, but it... You know, people, athletes, regular folks die every day of uh, cerebral edema, sometimes due to uh, altitude differentials. Sometimes it's just like a genetic time bomb that goes off. And sometimes it's, it's a hypersensitivity uh, that they're unaware of to a particular ingredient in something they consume. What a tragic loss from something so innocuous. Um, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, tragic. Um, 
I'm, you, I'm curious about, okay, so we've dispelled that. Um, well, hopefully we've dispelled that. I don't know. After conspiracy. all these years, I'm sure the, another fire will start up somewhere else. Of conspiracy. No, no doubt. But I got another one for you. Yeah. Um, not, not so much a conspiracy, but um, certainly a portrayal um, or, or um, you know, how, you know, how Bruce Lee may have uh, – a persona that we've all taken for granted because, uh, you know, uh, he's near and dear to our hearts and we admire the man and he's a legend, but, um, you know, he was portrayed in a very, very poor light in uh, once upon a time in Hollywood in the Tarantino flick. Yeah. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, I guess from the outside, you know, the outside looking in, we know you've, we've got a really cocky guy who is, is you know, just abs- cocksure of himself uh, and thumbing his nose at tradition and, you know, su- you know, really bright, really ambitious. And, you know, I guess there's, you know, a more, uh, I guess there's another way to portray him you know, I guess maybe some people might have looked at him the way that Tarantino portrays him. It's just this blowhard. But, <laughs> but, but I, from, I mean, I don't know. Certainly from all the footage that you've seen, all of mm-hmm. his writings, he doesn't really come across as the buffoon um, Tarantino made him out to be. And then to have this stuntman who's actually, I understand, was based on a real stuntman, um, basically whoop his ass um, in the film. It, it just, it, it just, I don't know. It doesn't ring true. But again, you're the expert on Bruce Lee. What are your thoughts on how he was portrayed on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Well, I, I don't think Bruce Lee was cocky. Uh, he may have been perceived that way by people who didn't know him. But okay. cocky is, is sort of an attitude one projects. Uh, when they don't have the ability, mm, you know, they want you to assume they have it. Uh, Bruce had the ability, so he didn't need to be cocky. And it's funny to tie it into Mike Menser. I think there's a, a similar um, uh, meaning of terms here. Okay. He told me once he went to a psychic party. This is Mike Menser. Okay. He and his girlfriend went to a, you know, sort of just a, a party, a, and he said everyone there was sort of reasonably well-to-do. And, and for the entertainment, they brought in a psychic who would analyze couples and tell them about their relationship, you know, going into the future and everything. And it became Mike and his girlfriend's turn to go before the psychic. And they did. And when they came out of the room, you know, all the guests at the party gathered around and said, oh, isn't he fantastic? Didn't he, didn't he tell you stuff about yourself? And Mike said, well, well, he was very good at picking up on body language and things like that. But no, it wasn't anything supernatural about it. Uh, and, the, and one of the people that was in the room with him got really uh, combative about it and said, what makes you so arrogant? Right. And Mike said, well, uh, you know, that's, that's the highest compliment I've had in weeks. He said, I'm not, uh, I'm not arrogant. I'm self-confident. You failed to make the distinction. So I'll still take it as a compliment. And I think that's what Bruce Lee was. He was self-confident. And he knew what he could do. He didn't just think, oh, I'd like to be this super guy. 
uh, in terms of capabilities. He knew what he was capable of. Mm. And uh, as he once said, you know, if I, if I tell you I'm good, you know, you'll think I'm boasting. He said, but if I tell you I'm no good, then you know I'm lying. So uh, he just, he was very confident. And I think self-confidence can be uh, misconstrued for arrogance or cockiness uh, by people who maybe don't know you uh, quite so well, just as in the case of Mike Benson. So anyway, I'm sorry, I, I'm oh, that's not going to read your question about Tarantino. Great analogy. But he, uh, yeah, I mean, the Tarantino claims to have based Bruce's claim in the film, or the Bruce Lee character's claim in the film, on being able to beat Muhammad Ali on a statement made by, um, oh, I forget who it was. I want to... I want to think it was Robert Klaus, or at least Klaus's version has been passed around that, you know, Bruce was looking through a magazine on the set of Enter the Dragon. There was a picture of Muhammad Ali and Bruce mm -hmm. said to John Saxon or somebody, well, I'm told, I, you know, he and I are going to have to fight someday. He said, but look at the size of his hand versus the size of my hand. He said, you know, and according to the quote, he said, mine's just a little Chinese hand. He would kill me. Um, I don't believe that anecdote. Um, I know that when Bruce Lee went out with, uh, <clears throat> I believe, the son of uh, the boxer, Gene Tunney, they, he, Bruce and his wife and uh, the senator, he was a senator then, uh, mm -hmm. went out with his wife and they were having dinner. And this fellow was quite impressed with Bruce. He said, how do you think you would have done against my dad? You know, Jack, um, not Jack Dempsey, but uh, Gene Tunney. Mm -hmm. Bruce said, well, I'll tell you the truth, I could probably beat anyone in the world. I mean, he was, Bruce wasn't lacking confidence, you know. Um, but as far as uh, Bruce going around saying, I would beat Muhammad Ali, no, he wouldn't, I don't believe he'd say that. Not because he lacked confidence should an encounter ever develop between he and uh, Muhammad Ali, but he just, number one, there was no chance of that ever happening. And, and number two, he respected him too much. He was, he was a huge fan of Ali. He used to watch Ali's um, movements in a mirror. And the reason he watched it, he projected through a mirror, was because Ollie was always a conventional staff or stance, left hand forward, power hand, right hand back. And Bruce's philosophy was you should always put your power side forward. So he needed to reverse it and he wanted to see how Ollie would move with his power side forward. Hmm. So he, he learned a lot by observing Ollie, just as he did Sugar Ray Robinson and, and great boxers like that. But uh, he was not. Bruce wasn't a guy that went around looking to challenge people or to make statements, especially on the Green Hornet. I mean, it was 1966. So right. he wasn't going to be, uh, you know, throwing down challenges and boasting that he was better than the heavyweight champion of the world. That just wouldn't have happened. Um, and as far as the stuntman's anecdote, uh, I think I know the stuntman to whom you're referring. And uh, whenever I've tried to fact check that guy, I, I come up empty. So I think nobody anticipated Bruce Lee to become what he became. And consequently, uh, people are put on the spot many years later after Bruce died and became this big thing that they, wanna, they want your attention because they touched the hand of the hand that touched Bruce Lee. And so they got to come up with something. And martial artists are the worst in that regard. Um, because it's not enough that they knew him. They were better than him, or they taught him something. If you listen to all of the martial artists that have talked throughout the years, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Bruce Lee would have had more degrees than, than a thermometer. I mean, he, you know, all these guys taught him something. 
at least three martial artists have claimed they taught him how to kick. But the reality was Bruce Lee was the epitome of the self-taught man. He would just go and practice, 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 practice. And if he saw a technique he liked, like a particular kick, he'd work on it until, in the words of someone like Jun Ri, who was a, a, considered a grandmaster in Taekwondo, he said, you know, I'd show Bruce a kick, for example. And he said, and I'd go back to Washington. Bruce was in LA. He said, when we got together again, he was doing it better than I was because he just practiced the hell out of it, you know, right. until it was an extension of himself. If he thought the technique had value. Right. Well, my, my understanding was that at, you know, at the time, I guess when he was in, uh, when he was in Oakland that, uh, and he had his schools that all the, all the champions uh, were coming to him to be trained. Chuck Norris was a student yeah. of his. That was Los Angeles, actually. Yeah. Los Angeles, okay. Yeah. Uh, they did, and then most of them promptly denied it afterwards, you know, because, okay. uh, you know, it's not good for their reputation to be seen as uh, perceived as subservient to somebody else, you know. But the reality was I've seen Bruce Lee's daytime diaries. I know who he trained and who he didn't. And when a martial artist, for example, Chuck Norris, claims – well, he didn't teach me. We, we just worked out together. We shared ideas. And there's no indication of that in the daytime diaries. There's not one notation that says, oh, Chuck showed me this or right. taught me that. But there is an indication that Bruce taught him Chi Sao, which is uh, a Wing Chun exercise for developing reflexive sensitivity. So, you know, th these guys were world champions. They all had egos. Mm -hmm. So, and Bruce Lee was, the, was a guy whose attitude was, show me. If you're that good, show me what you got. And it's, it's undoubtable that he would have had that conversation with these people. And shortly after that conversation, they went to his house. He didn't go to their house. Right. Into his place. And they wanted to learn what he had. And these are not only very good, some would say great martial artists in their own right. They were world champions. So the ego had to be you know, astronomical for them to think that this guy can teach me something. Yeah. Without so, you know, obviously for them to think that it wasn't just a conversation that, you know, Chuck Norris claims he had in the, in an elevator with Bruce Lee and then stepped out into the, the hallway and they exchanged techniques until, you know, two in the morning, Bruce showed him something pretty definitive. And shortly thereafter, Chuck was at Bruce's house learning from Bruce. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised. Again, he just invested so much of his time in, in knowledge, in learning, in philosophy, in study, studying the human body. I mean, he's just, he was, he was multidimensional. There, there's a quote that I want, you know, I think it's in one of the films where he says, I was wondering what your opinion is on this, but this is how deep the guy goes, right? It's like, he said, like everyone else, you want to learn the way to win but never to accept the way to lose, mm -hmm. said, right? To accept defeat, to learn to die is to be liberated from it. So he says, you must free your ambitious mind. And, and learn the art of art dying. Of right. Yeah. Yeah. What? Well, that's almost, that's a Zen maxim almost, which is the art of detachment. And to put it in more common parlance, it would be, you know, always fear the man who's got nothing to lose. Because right. he's not holding back, you know. And if you are already dead mentally, then you have no fear of death when you're facing an opponent. If you react that way, that you've got nothing to lose. So 
you know, you're going you're gonna to fight till the, the very last ounce of uh, ATP energy is out of your system. Um, right. And again, if you, have, if you have nothing to lose, you don't care. You'll take two or three punches in order to land yours. Um, so it's the art of detachment, you know, and that's, that goes to Zen, really, which Bruce was also an advocate of. Yeah, um, he, he was um, really into, and this is kind of uh, help us transition to our next subject, but he was really into self-help. Uh, yeah. In fact, right? So he, Absolutely. my understanding is, and again, I get, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of my knowledge basically from your work, right? So, um, so I know you're, you know, you're the authority on this and you'll know, but um, when he was laid up, uh, for those many months after he injured his back lifting weights. Right. Um, and, you know, he, had, he, he couldn't do anything other than lay on his, lay, you know, lay down or lay on his back for most of the day. Mm. Um, he was reading, as I understand, a lot of self-help books, a lot of psychology books. Yeah. And he ended up saying, I think if I got this right, he said, there is no help but, but self. self-help. Is that what he said? Yeah, he came to understand that there was no help but self-help. So you can't expect someone else to, you know, swing the doors open for you. You're going to have to figure out a way to open the door yourself, basically, no matter what it is. And that's true. You can, and maybe you've experienced this. You've had close friends, and it's one for all and all for one. And then when the crunch comes, it's suddenly just you. Right. And so I think when you know that going going into it, and that it's all on you, and you're the one that's got to work for whatever it is you wish. Um, there's very little chance of being disappointed or disillusioned, you know, which can weaken you on your journey. Um, you just, as he said, you know, full speed ahead, you know, damn the torpedoes. What his wife said in your documentary about, um, Bruce's interest, he read a lot of, while he was laid up, he read, he read a lot of Krishnamurti. Yeah. And she had mentioned that what he really kind of connected uh, on with uh, Krishnamurti, the philosopher, was um, self-reliance, that concept of self-reliance. Well, that and also Krishnamurti, who's a fascinating individual in his own right, uh, had been selected by the theosophists to be the new world teacher, sort of like a new Buddha, a new Christ figure. And they plucked him from a beach in India when he was a kid, he and his brother. And they put him through all the theosophy, which is almost like Aldous Huxley's book, The Perennial Philosophy. It's, mm -hmm. You know, we're all one with the universe and, and everything. Um, like quantum physics. So we're all, you know, pulsating at different vibrations and that what's what separates you from the chair is the frequency of the vibrations sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So they groomed him for this for a period of 30 years or so. And then, you know, they were, going to turn the reins over to Krishnamurti. This was his show at this point. He was the new world teacher and they had a big coming out and all the people that were theosophists from all over the world gathered to hear, uh, you know, Krishnamurti speak on this great moment. And when he got up to the microphone, he said, you know, truth is a pathless land, meaning that there is no way to get to it, not one way to get to it. He said, and therefore, if you think you're going to get to it through me, you're mistaken, you know, because you got to find it for yourself. And um, he also said that religions, particularly organized religions, he, he likened to cages. And you can see where this is going. They restrict you. Uh, they don't allow 
they're, they're an, uh, an obstruction between you and the truth that you seek. And you have to be free from all of that, free from all, re all religions and all thought and thinking and overthinking and all of this to, you know, to squeegee that third eye, if you will, and see clearly uh, what the reality is. And that was an epiphany for Bruce. That was, wow, what if I took martial arts styles in place of religion? I'm seeing the same um, validity in what he's saying here that's in the martial arts world. You know, the people are looking to, they're looking for the guy, or as Bruce said, you know, people looking for the truth saying, hand it over to me, you know, as if you could. Um, it's something you have to find for yourself. And you, and you can't get it through a, a religion which is a bottleneck that goes through one individual, you know, whether it's a Jim Jones figure or whatever, you've got, you've got to find it for yourself. And, you know, even in the Bible, I believe, and I, I'm probably going to quote this wrong, but Jesus is quoted as stating that, you know, everyone looks for the kingdom of God, but basically don't realize that the kingdom of God is right here on earth. It's here. And you got to open your eyes to see it. And the Essenes, that old sect, that was their belief at the time. But when you go to Rome uh, and you're pitching a religion that's going to get a sanction and you say, well, hey, we're all one, you know, and it's uh, no one's any more powerful than anyone else. And we're all part of this big process. Right. And they go, yeah, next. You know, and then, you know, in comes another one says, well, we got one guy who's a figurehead and, you know, people are going to tithe 20 to 30 percent into us and all flourish. Yeah, OK, you're our guy. We'll go with that. Right. You know, then you suddenly see a burning cross in the sky, you know, when you're Constantine. So they. Um, for Krishnamurti, it was get rid of that stuff, get rid of the history, the, the nonsense, and just open your eyes to the reality and explore it, go into it. As he used to say to his listeners, let's go into this together, you know, and let's see what we can find. So Bruce was very big on Krishnamurti. He must have had, by my recollection, he had at least 16 of his books. He had two cassettes, might have been reel-to-reel -reel tapes, actually, of uh, talks that Krishnamurti gave. I don't know if he ever went over to Ojai, California, which is where Krishnamurti was based, but, um, you know, when he was in L.A., it's possible, I suppose. But, yeah, he was, Krishnamurti was a huge influence on Bruce, especially in the latter stages in the development of his art, Jeet Kune Do. Um, Jeet Kune Do, which translated in English means roughly the way of the intercepting fist mm -hmm. or foot. Uh, the word Kun just means fist or combat. Uh, he, he created his art based largely on fencing and boxing and his art of Wing Chun using those principles, very short, direct, um, in terms of physics, right on the money. And one of the big techniques in fencing is called a stop hit, where you hit the guy with your foil or your saber prior to uh, him hitting you, you intercept his attack. And Bruce thought, well, let's remove the, the uh, appay and let's go with our hands and our feet same principle applies. So Jeet Kune Do, interception. It was an art predicated on interception, intercepting the opponent before he gets his attack to you. But I think after reading Krishnamurti, he realized, okay, I've just created a new cage. You know, it's the way or the cage of interception, which means I have to wait for an opponent to make a move to intercept it. You can't intercept it unless the other guy's moving for you. Otherwise, there's nothing to intercept. And that's when Krishnamurti sort of took the veils off his eyes and he said, whoa, this is, we got to go beyond this. It's got to be completely free 
So if I want to attack and I have an opening, I'm going to take the attack. I'm not going to wait to intercept somebody. Not that I'm throwing interception out. It, it works. But I'm just going to go with, with what works and, and then see what opportunities present themselves when I face an opponent. It's amazing. I, you know, I, I guess a lot of that time period, I think this is when the whole, whether it's Krishnamurti or, um, uh, you know, some of the other uh, writers of the time, you know, every, you know, Ayn Rand, we'll get into that. I mean, there seemed to be moving away from this idea of uh, psychology and or or practice of, of of psychologists to help you know with, help you with your problems or free you of your problems. It's funny and you mention that because um, I likened Bruce's final uh, stage of Jeet Kune Do when he was before going to Hong Kong to start his film career. Mm-hmm. He was still teaching, but he was teaching privately, and I likened him to kind of like the country doctor who would visit the patient. And he had his, his little black bag to help cure the patient. And Bruce's little black bag consisted of a kicking shield, focus mitts, and training apparatus. Mm-hmm. And he would go, and if you ever watch some of the backyard videos of Bruce training, say, James Coburn, right. uh, he would videotape them. And they'd go through whatever the workout was. And then Bruce would go home, and he would uh, do a voiceover on the tape to okay. say what they needed to work or what Coburn needed to work on, et cetera. And invariably he was saying, you need to free the burden of your mind. You're thinking too much about how to do the technique. Essentially, you know, you're thinking about, will it, will it be good enough? Am I doing it the right way? Uh, you know, is this going to hurt? He said, you got to get rid of that. Just go with it. You know, just go with it. He said, it's like, you know, uh, echo to sound, or if I throw a ball and you catch it reflexively, that's the way these techniques have to come out. But it was all about, um, you know, again, easing, as he said, his quote, ease the burden of your mind and just do it. And so he was like a traveling psychotherapist, you know, and he would, but he, his tool, his, rather than the, the couch, it was martial art to get people to come out of the shelves and express themselves more fully. Wow. Um, so, so this, this, um, no help, but self-help, um, you had mentioned, this leads me to, to mention, uh, you had mentioned Tony Robbins. I was going to mention Tony Robbins uh, because he, of course, became the modern era's uh, king of self-help. Uh, but uh, funnily enough, our man Mike Menser was uh, was his trainer. He tra- he trained briefly, he, yeah. he, right? He he trained Tony Robbins uh, for a while. Yeah. Um... Yeah, well, Tony was, uh, I think, intrigued by Mike's system, which was so brief. You know, it was once, once uh, every four, five, six, seven days. Uh-huh. It's lasted about 12 minutes. So he was, for a busy guy like Tony Robbins, that was manna from heaven. You know, he wanted to learn more about it. Um, and Mike went and, and taught him. As you, as you touched on Tony Robbins, I will say that while he is a, an advocate, of self-help it still is but you only get it through me you know come to my seminars buy my this buy my that so um it's it's one thing to advocate self-help it's another when you turn it into a corporation right gotcha gotcha 
Um, no, it's a very good point. Um, and so, but I, I know, he, you know, he, the movie, uh, the life of Brian, Monty Python a long time ago, but yes, my kids great, actually love that film. Yeah, no, there's a great scene in it where, um, you know, Brian, these people mistake him as being the Messiah and right. they start to follow him. These apostles and people that want, uh, you know, all these miracles to be done. And he gets fed up and he goes, listen, you don't need me. You don't need anybody. It, you know, it's all you, you know, the message that we've been talking about, you don't need anybody, you know? And so, uh, but then they're like, well, well, how do we do that? You know, or he basically told them to F off. They said, oh, how shall we F off, oh Lord? You know, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's like, it just, for some people, it just doesn't take. Now, the thing is, um, and that, that's what Krishnamurti said, by the way. You don't need me. You don't need anybody. Bruce Lee said the same thing. He said, I am a signpost. Don't take my way as the way. I, you know, you got to find out for yourself. Yeah, I think Tony Robbins was, uh, in all fairness, was always looking for, so he was always looking for a, a hack, right? A hack, something that the best used uh, in order to achieve something and then modeling that behavior so as not to uh, go through the, the, you know, the same journey of making mistakes that mm -hmm. could take years. He was always looking for those kinds of hacks uh, to, help, uh, to help make himself and others uh, more successful uh, in as an expedient fashion as possible. So I could see why when he, when he learned about Mensa, Mm -hmm. And his training and his heavy duty training principles, yeah. uh, it must have intrigued him because, you know, if you talk about, you know, a hack when it comes to, you know, physical fitness or, or, or strength training. A hack in right? the literary sense there for a minute. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, okay. yeah, not, we're not talking about the, right. We're talking about a biohack, right? Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So he's one of the original biohackers, uh, but also business hacker, um, success hacker. And, and so I could see why when he saw, and one of his big things was to mirror those who have been successful. Uh, you which, know, which to me, and I think to Bruce would be a step in the wrong direction because if you're mirroring someone else it has nothing to do with you. You're, you're now role playing, you know, you're not being yourself. You've discarded the you to become whatever this is, this person is. And I, I see that rampantly, and it, it, it leads to an inauthentic existence for people. For example, if you were going to quote me, nothing but Bruce Lee, and nothing but Tony Robbins, and you know, I, I can't get to you. I can't. I don't know anything about you. We can't have a real connection, a human being connection. And right. I've seen that with people. If I wrote something on Facebook, which I do occasionally, and um, it'll be a maybe a, a as a point on philosophy, some minor point. Okay. And someone will write, be water. That's like, come on. You know, I mean, just be original. You know, it's not, and Bruce didn't even say that. You know, it's, it's used everywhere. Be water. The most recent documentary, be water. That was written by Sterling Siliphant, his student, based on Bruce's philosophy. Certainly Bruce, uh, in, in his earliest writings in the 1960s, talked about, uh, how a gung fu man tried to be like water in terms of adaptability. It can adapt to anything. But the words, you know, put it into a teacup, it becomes a teacup, tea put it in a whatever, you know, a bottle, it becomes the bottle. 
that was Sterling Silliphant's words. You know, sure, he worked with Bruce, and yes, he understood the philosophy, and yes, he, he jotted it down in a very poetic uh, fashion. But there's nothing in Bruce's private writings or private recordings where he makes that statement. In some respects, I think his other statements are far more, less poetic, but the prose is, is more comprehensible. So uh, I, I don't know, it's just like I say, when I get people throwing quotes uh, of other people to me, like it doesn't, it doesn't show me that you understand what you've read or what you've heard, it just shows me you're, you're uh, parroting what someone else said. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Yeah, there's my beat. <laughs> with that said, though, with, with that said, um, you know, certainly, um, you know, you could see how if, if Robbins was looking for people who have been successful yeah. and, uh, you know, he, he comes upon Menser and his training principles, uh, that is so unorthodox compared to what's happening at the time and it, it certainly looks like an incredible um, uh, biohack or, 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 or certainly a more efficient and effective path to success. I could see why he would be attracted to that and why he'd seek Mike Mensah out. So I, I, I want to then ask you, I think this is a great time to um, discuss what, what was, I mean, I know what it was, but for the benefit of our, of our listeners, let's talk about Mike Mensah's training then what tony robbins went to seek out was mm -hmm. was mike menser's principles of what was what was known as what he called heavy duty heavy yeah. you can you um kind of get into a little bit about what heavy duty training is and how that came about well heavy duty training um was the brainchild of mike menser after or after his own research but also spending a lot of time with Arthur Jones, the man who created Nautilus machines. Mm. Uh, Jones was a, quite a character. I mean, he was described himself as about, you know, a thousand miles to the right of Attila the Hun, politically. So, <laughs> um, he was an intriguing guy. He was a very strong, his opinions were held very strongly and with vigor. Mm -hmm. um, and he spent God knows how many millions of dollars in the exercise um, research. And he created 40 or 50 prototypes before he sold his first Nautilus machine, paid for it out of his own pocket. Um, but he was interested in what are the actual requirements of productive exercise. Instead of just aping what everyone else is doing, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, Arnold trained the way he did largely because Reg Park, his idol, trained that. And that got passed down to Arnold, got passed down to Franco Colombo, and was picked up on by people like Frank Zane. And, all these other bodybuilders, Robbie Robinson, right through to the current crop. But it's tradition-based. It's not science-based. And so Mike was a pre-med student, and he's also worked in a uh, cardio lab for a while. So he had a, a pretty good understanding of anatomy and physiology. And once, one of the things he recognized is that when you work a muscle to the point where it cannot perform another repetition, you've, you've done it. That's all you need. You don't need to put the weight down, wait till there's some recovery of the uh, lower order muscle fibers and then go and repeat it. It's like, you know, hitting a light switch. Hit it once, light comes on. Mm -hmm. You don't hit it up and down seven, eight, nine, 10, 20 times. It's not gonna make the light any brighter. Or when you push the button for an elevator, you push it another 30 times, it doesn't get there any quicker. 
and he recognized that genetics played a huge role in how big one's muscles could become. And indeed, it plays a huge role in almost everything in human life, you know, from the color of your eyes to your height to, to your gender to your uh, natural aptitude for certain athletic events mm-hmm. uh, and bodybuilding likewise. And so Mike pointed that out, and he was among the first, to his credit, to say not everyone's going to be a champion bodybuilder. And he said this at a time when the money that was being made by Joe Weider and the champions selling their courses, the, the pitch line essentially on all of them was, you too can look like me right. if you buy this. And Mike said, ain't going to happen. You, know, it's, uh, you can look better. You can build muscle, but how much muscle you build is a matter entirely dictated by your genetics. So given that there is a finite amount of muscle that an individual can build throughout their lifetime, and maybe that number is 15 pounds, which is considerable. You know, if if you and I suddenly put on 15 pounds of muscle, we wouldn't recognize ourselves. But muscle doesn't come in at 15 pounds overnight. It, It takes time, it takes years. And so, you know, as Mike used to say, you know, if you could gain five pounds a year of muscle, you're doing pretty good. Um, but when you think about it, once you've gained your 15 pounds, which could be if you're really training hard in a year, maybe you can do it in a year. If you're training reasonably hard, maybe it'll take two or three years. But at some point, you're going to bump up against that genetic cap, that ceiling. And at that point, how much of a mistake would it be to then double, triple, quadruple your visits to the gym. You're not going to get any more gain, but you are going to you know, induce a ton of wear and tear in the joints, trying to push a level of adaptation that isn't going to come. Mm. So Mike pointed this out and said, consequently, why don't you just do you know, not as much exercise as you can tolerate, but as little as is required to you know, advance toward that goal. And don't forget the recovery is every bit the equal of the workout. The workout is a stimulus. It acts upon an organism, your body, and your body given time then produces an adaptation or a response in in the case of bodybuilding, a bigger, stronger muscle. But if you just go and train, all you're doing is reapplying the stimulus, reapplying the stimulus, reapplying the stimulus. And I, I liken it to this. If you cut or burn yourself, that too is a stimulus. It's a prompt for your body to produce new dermis, new skin to close the wound. Mm-hmm. And the next time that should happen, just, you know, um, offhandedly, just, to, just observe how long it takes that wound to close. And that's a tiny little bit of skin, of tissue that has to be produced. Mm-hmm. Usually two weeks, one week, two weeks, somewhere in that neighborhood. It never happens in 24 hours. So using that the burn on the element of the stove was the stimulus like the workout to produce an adaptation and your body rests and the adaptation produces just like you rest your hand and now the skin starts to grow how little sense does it make to say you know what it's it's not healing quick enough i'm going to reapply that stimulus going to put my hand back on the stove three or four times all it does is is uh, short circuit the growth process so these were concepts that no one had ever really heard of before. Mike brought them to bodybuilding and into an arena where more is better. You know, if you're a big, strong, tough guy, you got to go train more than everyone else. And, and he was shaking his head. Like, why? Like, for example, when Arnold won the Mr. Universe contest, I think it was in 1969, 
he was training a la Reg Park, which was Arnold's method was typically twice a day workouts, six right. days a week. Each workout was on the order of about two hours. How many sets? No idea. 20 sets, 40 sets of body part, whatever, probably 20. Um, and so he was, he was working out in and around 32 hours a week to, to build muscle. Mike, when he won the Mr. Universe with the first perfect score in history, in the history of the contest, he was training half an hour, three days a week, hour and a half a week. It's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, his body fat was as low as Arnold's. It was about 3%. Um, Mike looked phenomenal, as did Arnold. They're both genetic marvels. They both use steroids. Um, so the only other variable is how often did they train? And clearly, if you can build a Mr. Universe physique with 30 minutes three times a week, why on earth <laughs> would you go to the gym six days a week, twice a day for two hours a pop? But that was Mike's contribution and and he was kind of viewed as the anti-arnold you know um, okay. and arnold was brought to america to sell protein product and exercise equipment for joe weeder that was his job and that's what he did if you look at the early muscle builder magazines arnold's on almost every other page so mike came in and mike you have to also know was intoxicated with bodybuilding he loved it he loved the ethos of it okay. you know, to, build your body to its maximum potential to see what you're capable of. Uh, there wasn't a nobler enterprise on the face of the earth from Mike's perspective. And, and he loved everything that went with it. He loved the magazines and how silly they were. And he loved the various figures and he thought Arnold was great and pumping iron was terrific. And Joe Weider was a character, but uh, you, know, you know, hats off to him for this enterprise that he has created and has gotten it out to the public. So more people can maybe embrace this ethos of, building yourself up, you know, just like the ancient Greeks, healthy mind, and healthy body, maximally develop your intellect, maximally develop your, your physical potential, and then your human potential in aggregate is fully expressed. So Mike loved all of that. And uh, he went along with um, sort of the supplement thing initially when he first moved out to California, because it was, hey, isn't it fun to be, I'm a bodybuilder now, I'm just like these guys doing stuff. So, you know, we hold up a can of Joe Weider's whatever it was. And, but then uh, it bothered him. He had a, a twinge of conscience. He thought, wait a minute. You know, there was a time when I was a young bodybuilder. Right. And I believed everything I read in the magazines. And I'm just contributing to that. So almost overnight, no more ads for protein product. No more ads for any BS bodybuilding supplement. And he just started speaking what he took to be the truth about bodybuilding so that other young bodybuilders wouldn't go down all the, you know, the blind alleys and the dead end paths that he did in his life. But it did, it did get a lot of play in the magazines. I remember reading, I mean, I remember reading all about heavy duty training and Mike Menser and his, and his um, iconoclastic style yeah. and his methods. I remember reading all about it and learning in muscle and fitness in flex magazine. So they certainly gave him a platform. Well, Peter gave him a platform. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, you know, instead of same old, same old, this was something new. This was something fresh. This was something that caused discussion and debate. Right. And, and that caused interest and that increased magazine sales. Uh, Mike quickly built up, built up his own following. And it, it very soon rivaled, if not eclipsed Arnold's for a brief period of time. And um, at the time, the other interesting thing was Joe had had a bit of a falling out with Arnold. 
if you ever read Randy Roach's excellent series of books, Muscle, Smoke, and Mirrors, mm -hmm. he goes into detail about that. Um, but there was a period in the late 70s where Joe and Arnold were not very tight. But Joe still needed a guy. He needed a face. He needed uh, you know, someone to be his champion, basically. Okay. Mike fit the bill. He was a good-looking guy. He was incredibly articulate. He was smart. He was the embodiment of a healthy mind and a healthy body. Uh, incredible physique and muscle fiber density. And he was winning contests. But then Arnold came back into the fold. And one of the things that uh, became problematic and that was pointed out to Joe was, hey, Joe, you're, you're giving a lot of space to this guy, but he's not endorsing your protein product like Arnold did. And number two, he's advocating a method that is far closer to what Arthur Jones at Nautilus, a machine training company, advocates than the Weeder system. So, you know, he's not giving you any credit, Joe. Why are you giving him this exposure? And soon the relationship began to sour. Arnold came back into the fold. And, you know, the rest is history. I mean, Mike started, Mike was winning contests after the prejudging and suddenly losing them in the finals. Um, and then the 80 Olympia was a total joke. And that's what I was, I was just about to say. And then we get to the 80 Olympia. Now, to put this in context for our listeners who might not be, um, who might not be his, you know, bodybuild, fans of the, the golden era of bodybuilding, right. put this in context. In 1979, Menser, you know, again, that was controversial. Frank Zane won the Olympia, but he, but Menser won the heavyweight class. Right. And he had a, and he got an, another 300 perfect score. Right. And, you know, again, by all rights, probably should have won uh, the 79 Olympia, but he, he didn't. Um, Frank Zane won it. Right. But then going into the 80 Olympia, you got to figure Menser's going in there as a favorite, as oh, the favorite, you know, as, a, as one of the, the, the favorites to win that show. Yeah, I mean, Frank Zane is uh, a phenomenal bodybuilder. I mean, uh, he was, when I, I got interested in training through Bruce Lee's physique, when I, you know, and I wanted to learn how to build my body when I was a kid, and all we had were the muscle magazines. So I'd flip through and I'd see Arnold, and I'd go, whoa, man, that's huge. Like, that's almost cartoonish. And then Frank Zane appeared, and he was like sort of a cross between Arnold and Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. Highly defined, not ridiculously huge, but still big, you know. And uh, I was a huge fan of Frank Zane, still am to this day, in terms of his physique. Um, but again, when it, it um, with the 80 Olympia, so, uh, you know, Frank Zane was a three-time Mr. Olympia champion. It's true the 79 was controversial. Um, a lot of people thought Mike should have won it. Uh, actually, Chris Lund, who was a photographer, mm -hmm. bodybuilding photographer, friend of mine, I remember I was working with him. He had a little store in Toronto selling bodybuilding products. And he came back from the 79 Olympia, and he was an amazing photographer. He took these great, he had a Hasselblad camera, no other bodybuilding Part of that camera. That's, that's an amazing Just camera. Incredible resolution. And he said, Mike Menser should have won the show. I uh, said, you know, he just, he was big, he was ripped, he was all of those things. Wow. But as you know, bodybuilding is a subjective sport. Yep. Uh, some people, I mean, if I had been a judge in my Frank Zane era, it would have been Frank Zane all the way. However, um, 
Frank Zane, between the 79 Olympia and the 80 Olympia, had suffered an accident. You got to think the defending champ is the favorite going in. But he had an accident. He was sitting by his pool in Palm Springs, mm -hmm. and his chair collapsed. And he had internal bleeding. He was in the hospital for eight days. Wow. So he, he lost a fair amount of muscle. And the very fact that he showed up and competed at all is a testament to his, his character. But um, once that word got out, Menser immediately became the favorite because it was basically the same crop of guys going in the Olympia in 80 that went in at 79. Mike was ahead of Zane in 79 when Zane was at his peak and lost it in the finals. This, you know, this time around, Zane's injured. He's lost muscle. Mike, in, uh, on the other hand, has gained 10 pounds of muscle since 79. He's even more ripped. So everyone thought Mike was definitely going to do it. But unbeknownst to all of the competitors, Arnold Schwarzenegger decided he was going to come back. And most competitors signed their contracts to compete seven months, eight months prior to the contest. Mm -hmm. Arnold, no signature. As far as he told everyone that he was going to do uh, color commentary for uh, CBS. He wasn't no interest in competing. Day before the contest, he announces he's going to compete. Oh. And uh, <coughs> this gets interesting because it's my belief that Arnold's film career was not really taking off in the way that he had anticipated. He had okay. done a handful of, of, he made movies, but he was always a, a supporting role. And the villain, he was second to Kirk Douglas and Anne Margaret. In the Jane Mansfield story, he was second to Lonnie Anderson. He'd had a guest appearance on Streets of San Francisco as a psychotic bodybuilder. And uh, his first movie was actually called Hercules in New York with Arnold yeah. Stang. You know, it was just a brutal movie. And, and Hollywood and the production company, even though they'd signed Arnold for Conan, which was going to be his breakout movie, mm -hmm. they were having second thoughts. Because, number one, none of his films were blockbusters, the ones that he appeared in as a supporting player. Mm -hmm. Number two, his accent was still considered problematic to a lot of people. And there was no shortage of muscle men that could step in and play Conan. So... I think Dino De Laurentiis and company were thinking, is this the guy? We want to risk a $15 million film production. And, and the other thing was, Arnold had been out of the game for five years. His last competition was in 75. So does he still have the following? Wow. Is he going to put enough asses in the seats that we're going to recoup our production budget on this? I think these were serious questions. And it occurred to Arnold that if he could win the Olympia again, the biggest contest in bodybuilding. Number one, ABC Sports would beam it into all every North American household, millions of people. He would be on the cover of every bodybuilding magazine again for another year. These are all good things to take to Dino and say, you know, I guarantee I have followers all around the world. Yep. I'm going to bring all the bodybuilding fans in to see my movie for him. But he had to win the contest. And the problem was he'd been out of the game for five years and bodybuilding had improved. Um, you know, these guys were bigger. They were meaner. Menser, for example, was six inches shorter and might even have outweighed Arnold at the 80 Olympia. Wow. So, you know, these, that's the way it was. But the promoter, Paul Graham, was a friend of Arnold's. <laughs> um, depending on which report you read, uh, he saved Arnold from doing time in prison at one point. Really? So Arnold felt he owed him. Yeah. And um, he got the rights to the contest and picked the judges. 
And the judges were people like Reg Park, Arnold's hero. Who oh. Yeah, uh, Albert Busick, who was friends with Arnold since Arnold was a kid in, in Austria. Um, and then at the 11th hour, they switched another judge out and put in a younger guy named Brendan Ryan, who had no international judging credentials at all. In fact, he worked for Paul Graham at Paul Graham's gym in Australia. And Mike told me that both Graham and Brendan Ryan were investors in a documentary that Paul Graham was going to make called The Comeback, oh. which, which is amazing prescience off the charts that you know Arnold's going to come back and win um, before the contest happens. But so the promoter's making a documentary about Arnold's comeback. The judges, one of the major investors in the film is a judge, and the other, the other ones are, are friends of Arnold. It only takes one or two to really you know, bump the score up to the point where it's beyond reach for anyone else. And um, then the other thing is bodybuilding contest, for those who don't know, there's four rounds. First round, all the bodies come, bodybuilders come out and they stand facing the judges. And the judges look for symmetry and proportion. You know, are the legs too skinny? Do they match the upper body? You know, does he look like a TV stand? Or does he look like a bodybuilder? Are the calves in proportion to the thighs? You know, are the arms in proportion to the legs? And all of these sort of things. And they, they have the bodybuilder turn around. So judging from the back, both sides, and the front. And the next round's called, um, it's where they, they, they do certain poses, a muscularity round, where they, they show the muscles in mandatory poses. So they'll do a front double bicep, they'll spread their lats from the side, they'll flex their triceps from the side, they'll flex their abdominals and their thighs. Well, Arnold, he obviously hadn't had enough time to train. His upper body looked pretty good. If you look at the photos, he looked, his upper body was almost there, but the legs were not. The legs were thin. Um, right. And so his proportion, he should have been marked down heavily on proportion right there. You remember Tom Platts, the bodybuilder, known for his huge legs? Oh. Well, he used to get marked down for proportion because his legs were so much bigger than his upper body. They're yep. out of proportion. This was the reverse. But then uh, when it came time to do the mandatory poses, Arnold didn't do them. He did whatever pose he wanted that would show off the body parts that he knew were well-developed. So it would be like in baseball you hit the ball, it starts to go to the park, but you refuse to run the bases or touch the bases when you go around. You can't count the run. Well, in this case, the judges gave Arnold perfect score. Perfect score for not doing the poses he's supposed to do. Wow. Um, and then when he did his, the third round, which is a posing round to music, which you see in contests, which Arnold should have been right up his out, right? Because you can just show the, the muscles you're comfortable showing. You don't have to do poses that show the ones that you don't think are fully developed. Uh, he got marked down a bit, kind of strange. And then in the pose down, which is almost a throwaway while the judges are tabulating their scores, um, he got marked back up again. So anyway, he gets, you know, almost the best scores he's probably ever had in his career. And Mike Manser is relegated to fifth place. Um, Frank Zane is given third. Uh, Chris Dickerson was second and Boyer Co was fourth. But, you know, in speaking to all of those bodybuilders at one time or another, when I worked for Joe Weider, they'd come into the office and I'd ask them about it mm -hmm. to a man. They said, Arnold did not deserve to win that Olympia. And in their opinion, he was lucky if he would have cracked the top five, but such is the nature of bodybuilding and the business interests that run. I mean, both Weider brothers 
one owned the magazine for promotion and publicity and the other ran the organization like right. competitive so if you <laughs> if a champion won he would endorse joe's product and everybody you know joe made money and uh, as long as one hand washed the other everything was fine it's a fascinating story that a lot of people just don't know unless you're really steeped in 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 body in bodybuilding history in your well and it's funny because it really to the average person it's the lowest form of trivia i mean if you <laughs> you go out on the street and stop the first person you meet and say who's mr olympia they're gonna go i don't know what? they haven't got a clue <laughs> but, but if, if you're a fan it's fascinating yeah. oh yeah well, if you're a fan that's your this is like that's your Olympus, right? That's your, these are yeah. the gods, you know, and. Uh, you mentioned you were, you, you were doing um, a fair bit of research on the, on the AD Olympia. Are you planning on coming out with a book or, or a documentary? My, or my ultimate goal would be to do a documentary on it. That'd be um, amazing, yeah. I would love to do a documentary on it. And I've gathered what information I can, most of it, just to, for myself, I, it's, it's a habit I have that if I want to learn about something, I'll read about it, but then I'll try and build a film. It may never leave my computer, but how do, what is the story here? And I try to bring in testimony from as many different people as I can to help move the narrative mm -hmm. and the B-roll images over it. And so that's what I've been doing. And if I think it passes muster, then what I'll do is polish it up, even though I know my source material is awful, and uh, <laughs> bring it to um, people who are in a in a position to, to produce a production budget so that I could go and do the stuff properly. License footage, do fresh interviews on 4K, for example, mm -hmm. travel to Sydney, Australia, where it took place. Um, so that's, that's my uh, goal at the moment. I, I think that would be genius. I mean, that would be, an, uh, what a great story to tell. So I really hope that you- uh, yeah, It's funny, you know, I have my, I have three sons and a daughter. And uh, three of my sons are very into film, two in particular. And I, I told them, uh, I said, you know, you got to understand, uh, I was a friend of Mike Menser's. I said, so I, undoubtedly I have a bias. I said, I don't want the bias to come into this film. Um, I want it to be objective. And I think, you know, as Will Durant once said, speak the truth and time will be your eloquence. And I think, that that's the key. The key isn't, oh, gee, Mike Menser got ripped off. The key is Arnold didn't deserve to win. And whoever else you think should have won, you, you can plug him in. But uh, it's unanimous from everyone I've spoken to and the research I've done. Nobody thought Arnold deserved to win. And that's basically what Mike told me. So I'm going to kind of switch gears a bit um, because in talking about Menser and his, and his heavy duty principles um, yeah. and, uh, and high intensity training is, you know, maybe another phrase for it, but why was, because I remember um, I loved Mike Menser. I, I, I loved his articles. They were so fascinating because you really just didn't read anything like it. the only, the other writer that I enjoyed um, incredibly um, I, and obviously I know you from back in the day from reading your articles as well. Um, back in the day though, before you were writing, yeah. um, there was someone, which I, you know the name, was a guy by the name of Rick Wayne. Ricky Wayne, yeah, great writer. 
great, great, great writer. Bodybuilding writers of all time. Jack Neary was the other one. He was an amazing writer. Jack Neary and Rick Wayne were the two best bodybuilding writers uh, that I've ever come across. Uh, Mike well, was good. Mike was also up there, but uh, these guys had a real gift. So this was the thing. What, you know, so I, I'm a kid. It's, it's, you know, I'm reading like these, these magazines, and then I, I come across Rick Wayne, and I'm fascinated by his articles. I come across Mensa, fascinated by his articles. And what really starts to uh, pique my interest is Mensa starts talking about this philosophy called objectivism. Yeah. And he starts getting into Ayn Rand. And I'm like, what's this all about? And that yeah. took me onto a whole nother world. And so what I'm curious about is why was, so why was Menser's training so wrapped up in philosophy, much like Lee's training was, was uh, martial art was wrapped up in philosophy. But why was Menser's training so wrapped up in philosophy, namely the philosophy of Ayn Rand? Well, Mike would describe training once as being purposefully directed behavior. So it was principle to do something for a reason. And Mike, took, Mike didn't embrace objectivism or Ayn Rand till after the 80 Olympics. It was probably, gosh. Interesting. I want to think 84, 1984. Um, Mike was already, I mean, he was inclined intellectually anyway. Like, when I knew him, when he was still competing. When did you first meet Mike Menser? Uh, I met Mike, uh, the first time I crossed paths with Mike Menser was in 1980, but it was about six months before the Mr. Olympia. Okay, gotcha. And he had, um, he was big on Jean-Paul Sartre, particularly Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, the existentialists which again said a similar thing, which is it's your responsibility to look out for you. You can't, if you're successful, well, pat yourself on the back. But if you're a failure, you can't blame it on someone else and foist it upon their shoulders. Mm -hmm. Says Mike once said to me, anything I am or am not is a result of the choices I've made or my abdication thereof, his quote. Um, so he, he was, very pro-reason, even, I mean, probably ever since he entered uh, university. So any philosopher that espoused reason, they had Mike's ear. And he read lots of them. Um, he liked Will Durant. He liked Friedrich Nietzsche. He liked, he read Kierkegaard. He read to the East. He read, um, oh, I keep confusing his name. The guy who committed seppuku. Um, <laughs> I want to say Musashi, but he was a samurai swordsman. It's not Musashi. It's, uh, damn, it'll come to you. Sun and Steel. Mishima. Uh, he, um, Miko, I think it was Miko, Mika, Mishima. Um, Musashi with the five rings, right? That was Musashi. That was the swordsman. But uh, yeah. Mishima was um, a guy who actually tried to bring back the code of Bushido and honor to uh, the Japanese after the Second World War, when they had been sort of ground under the heel of uh, Europe. Right. He, he thought that uh, that was beneath them, that they needed to have more honor and more, you know, to, not to bend the knee to the foreign powers. So he got into bodybuilding, this machine. Really? And 
converted himself from a scrawny little guy to uh, a pretty muscular, almost a Bruce Lee type physique. And in fact, you're probably familiar with that famous photo of Bruce doing what people have since called the dragon flag, where he's holding onto the bars and his, his legs are out. Yep. Back yep. elevated off the bench. Mishima yep. did that before Bruce Lee did. Wow. Um, so I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if Bruce was familiar with Mishima, even obliquely. But in any event, um, Mike was inclined toward reason. And when he found Ayn Rand, it was the first, in his words, most fully consistent application of reason through the five branches of philosophy. And he loved that. Um, and he devoured anything from Ayn Rand. You know, I mean, I have, when I went to visit him in 1988, mm -hmm. I didn't know much about objectivism at all. <clears throat> A friend of mine, Menster had told me about uh, Ayn Rand. And I thought, oh my God, a writer of fiction, what are they going to know about philosophy? Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine who's quite intellectual said, well, what do you think Plato's dialogues are? You know, is that not philosophy? And I thought, well, good point. You know, Plato concocted these dialogues to convey philosophic principles. So I still, I went to visit Mike and he was telling me about objectivism and, and I was, I was fascinated because I love philosophy, but to me, you know, real philosophy were the ancient Greeks. They're the guys, you know, they knew it all. And that's, uh, that's my kind of philosophy. Socrates, Aristotle. Yeah, or more contemporarily, I like Bertrand Russell. I thought he was great, and oh, I thought okay. he was, it was chic that he was an atheist and all of this kind of stuff, and witty and all stuff, and easy to read, probably, which at my age was important. But um, he, I looked at these publications he had from the, um, I guess it was the Ayn Rand Institute, mm -hmm. or might have been whatever what the entity was that predated that. And there were these little booklets which had essays by Leonard Peacock and Henry Binswanger and these people and I, I cracked one open and pulled it off a shelf and he had underlined like everything annotations in the margins and where he'd think about it and he told me that he would um, take a tape recorder with him while he was driving and if there was a slowdown in traffic he would um, see if he could uh, remember the, you know the various um, definitions and applications of uh, objectivist philosophy so that he could more firmly ingrate it into his daily thinking. And I thought, well, this is interesting. So this was 1988. So he gave me those two booklets, which I still have, by the way, with all those annotations. Oh, wow. And uh, I brought them home and I thought, well, I still, like I'd go to the bookstore and I'd see Atlas Shrugged. And I thought, oh my God, look at the size of it. Right. I have no interest in wading into that. But then I understood that I sent away for their catalog, <coughs> excuse me, which had different products they're selling, audio lectures and mm -hmm. books and things like that. And I saw that there was a lecture course that you could rent. You couldn't even buy it then. You had to rent it of sure. Leonard Peikoff on the principles of objectivism. It was a 36-hour cassette course. And you only had it for X amount of time. Then he had to send it back. Okay. So I remember sitting in my living room and playing these tapes every night for however long it took to get through all of those tapes. 
And I was very impressed with Leonard Peikoff. I thought, because he was coming at it from uh, an academic perspective, just like my love of ancient Greece, you know, he, he knew the context of where Ayn Rand fit into all of that in the history of philosophy. And he had an audio lecture series called, Indeed, the History of Western Philosophy. And he finished with objectivism. And so after I'd finished listening to that, I thought, this, this guy's good. Like, he was funny, he was witty, very intelligent. Uh, and he, he explained objectivism in a manner that was easily digestible. You know, and it was one of the reasons, ultimately, when I did the film Ayn Rand in her own words, mm-hmm. it's been so misrepresented by her many enemies and so many people that want to tell you how to think about Ayn Rand and what she really meant, you know, what she's really about. I thought, you know what, well, let's just clear these people right off the table and let her speak for herself. You know, there's not going to be one comment in this film uh, that isn't from her. So it's like if you went out for lunch with Ayn Rand for an hour, and you came back and someone said, what was she like? Well, you'd have an informed opinion. But if you went out with her enemies, you would have no, or even her acolytes, you know, people that, you know, hang on every word she says and mm-hmm. parrot what she says uh, without any uh, digestion of her own uh, thought and how it applies to their lives. Um, those, th- their opinions don't mean anything. It's better to go to the source. I did that with Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee in his own words for the same reason. Did it with Leonard Peikoff, who I was delighted because it it gave me an entree to uh, get to know him and befriend him. So that was really cool. And then uh, the Ayn Rand film. So uh, I came to Ayn Rand very grudgingly. And I still, there's a part of me that bristles of being a joiner of anything. (laughs) If you were to say, are you an objectivist? I'm like, I'm just me, you know. I happen to agree with a lot of those principles, but uh, I'm not a card-carrying, you know, whatever someone else says rules because I've had too much Bruce Lee and I've had too much Mike Menser for me to go that way. Right. You don't want to be in a cage. Exactly. So Leonard Peikoff, um, really interesting guy. Um, hmm. so he, the form. He was the former director of the Ayn Rand Institute and her literary and intellectual heir. You made a, as you said, you made a documentary film about him. And in the film, he tells a story. And I want to, I want to, I want to mention this story and then ask you this question. In the film, he tells the story of, of his first meeting um, with Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand when he was 17. Let's get down to yeah. Yeah. Let's get that. And it was, I think this was like in the early fifties and he, he gets to meet her and you know, like they're making small talk. Like you just said, and he's like, let's get down the business. And he asked her this question about an issue that he can't seem to reconcile. And her answer changes the entire course of Peacock's life. He, he asked if the Howard Rock character, the hero in, in her novel, the fountainhead, was meant to be moral or practical because yeah. to Peikoff, uh, Rourke appeared to be portrayed as eminently practical. And Peikoff assumed that in the real world, you can't be both moral and practical, that there's always a compromise if you want to be successful. Yeah. And, P- and Peikoff couldn't resolve the, the dichotomy. How can you be moral, practical, and successful? So 
Ayn Rand explained the problem with the dichotomy of the moral and the practical. And she said that if you had a rational code of morality, one that was based on, um, one that was based on reason, then, then, it will, then it will work in reality and allow you to achieve your goals. And that conflict really only exists because most people base morality on the irrational, right. on the spiritual, right, on superstition. But if you derive your code of virtues on what is required for people to live in reality, then the more moral you are, the more successful you will be. And Peikoff said he was, and this is in your documentary, right? Peikoff says... He was blown away by this explanation and said it was like a revelation that you yeah. could, he now saw that you could actually have ideals and yeah. practice them and still be virtuous and moral and successful. And he realized that the world doesn't have to be a hostile place to idealists. If your values are based on reason, if your ideals are based on reality, then the world's a place where you can achieve anything. And when I was listening, watching your documentary, and I was listening to Peikoff speak, like, it, it was so, so motivating. Like he was so motivated. Yeah. And I started to think for the first time because he actually, I felt like that after I read Atlas Shrugged. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I mean, literally, I, went, I was on a love affair with Ayn Rand and her philosophy for years after that. Yeah. Um, and then, I, before, but I never thought what I'm about to ask you, which was after listening to Peikoff, I said to myself, holy shit, is objectivism, is objectivism the ultimate form of self-help? Is it, is it a self, is, it a, is that what this is? That's a good question. Um, I, I can, it, <laughs> I know to Mike Mentzer it was, uh, I can say that. I mean, I've, in terms of my own experience, um, I haven't, as Bruce might say, emptied my cup fully enough. Uh, I still contain, my psyche still contains a lot of um, philosophy from disparate sources. Okay. Uh, that philosophy to me sometimes is kind of like a sweatshirt. You know, it's, it's, you, you wear what's comfortable depending on what's going on in your life. But I've always found that I always, there's that voice of reason that keeps pulling you back. And it has to, if you're going to exist in this world. My big fear, and perhaps my rationalization mm -hmm. of that fear, is that I don't want to become an automaton. I want to figure it out for myself. I, you know, it's great that Ayn Rand figured it out, but that's you telling me that. Mm. You know, I need to figure it out for myself. I can't take it on faith or on hearsay that someone else has cracked the nut. But when I read her material, Mm -hmm. Leonard Peikoff's material, I find myself nodding my head. So there's a part of me that wants to take the journey. I don't just want to know what the destination is. I want the journey. And um, so that, that part of me uh, digs in a little bit about joining a group, like an objectivist group or an existentialist group or a socialist group or a capitalist group or whatever group it is. I'm not mm -hmm. really interested. I wouldn't want to be in a group of people uh, that all shared my views. That, that would be the most boring evening of my life if I joined a thing. <laughs> so I, I like Ayn Rand. I like Leonard Peikoff. I like Mike Mentzer. I like Bruce Lee because they were unique. They were individuals. They were, 
They were, their thoughts were 100% theirs and they believed them to the core of their very being. And those are fascinating people to, to be around, to spend time with. Mm. And they throw off a lot of sparks. And in some cases, you can take a couple sparks from one person, take another couple of sparks from someone, and then you work with it a bit. And maybe over time, eh, that spark burned out. That's not quite so important. But these other ones are significant. But if you don't go around people like that, you never get the sparks. You know, you just, it's just same old, same old. Why do so many people, I mean, one of the things that draws, you know, again, like these are all controversial figures, right? Bruce Lee was extremely controversial in his time. Brand, extremely controversial. I, as you called it, I think you've got the right word, iconoclastic. Yeah. Uh, Menser, iconoclastic. Yeah. Um, why? So, but with respect to, to Rand, why was she so hated? I mean, I know why, but I'm doing this for <coughs> the audience. Well, Leonard Peacock told me, he said, you can't challenge uh, what people have held near and dear for 3,000 years uh, and expect people to say how wonderful you are. You know, he said, you're putting your head in a buzzsaw and you just have to know you're doing that. But uh, she, it's, a lot of people, again, are, are, are uh, collectivists in the sense that they like their little groups. They like the safety of the herd. Right. We all think the same. Therefore, you know, if I know you and you're my group, you're okay. You're no threat to me because we think the same thing. We value the same things. So there's other groups we got to watch out for, you know. And so you divide that line in the sand, you know. And uh, there's an old Taoist saying that a, a hair's breadth difference divides heaven and earth, you know. And um, mm. uh, so I think she's hated because, particularly in the United States, where her by far her biggest readership is. You're either a Democrat or you're a Republican. Mm -hmm. And they have their own tenets. You know, they have, if you're a Republican, you're going to be free enterprise. You're going to be less government. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to be pro-religion. Mm -hmm. And if you are a Democrat, you're going to be more state, mm -hmm. less religion, more science maybe. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and Ayn Rand didn't fit those. There wasn't a check mark in every box. She was, she was capitalist, yes. So Democrats don't like, she was atheist. Oh, Republicans suddenly got to keep your distance. Um, she didn't believe in um, collectivism. She was an individualist. Right. Um, that's, you know, again, that's the smallest minority in, in the world. So right. you don't carry a big lobby group when you're an individual. So there's nothing she could do or an objectivist could do um, to benefit either the current, the, the finances or the power base of either of those two parties. So again, when you think for yourself, you're not, you're not just going to step in line behind another group. You're going to agree with certain things. You're going to disagree with certain things. It's one of the reasons I haven't voted since I was 17 years old. I've never found the politician that embodies all the beliefs that I you know, think are important. There's, you know, it's like there's some you think, ah, nope, can't do it. You know, it didn't, didn't quite uh, yeah. measure up. So she has, that's why she's vilified in the United States. Um, you know, the left paints her as, oh, it's all about greed. Look out for yourself and squash your, uh, anyone who doesn't think like you. And that's not what she said. You know, that's, mm -hmm. it's the same thing I see when people attack Bruce Lee or they attack Mike Menser. It's, it's the ad hominem argument and, um, it's disingenuous and therefore not very potent. Um, 
it, it's really, they're throwing up a smoke screen as to why they're not going to look into the subject series. I think that brings all three of these characters together, you know, in this, you know, as I, when I started our conversation, I talked about this nexus mm -hmm. uh, between Menser, Rand, and Bruce Lee. Um, I'm, you know, I'm so much more uh, emphatic about that idea now after having spoken with you because it's so, it's so much clearer um, how, you know, how they all fit into this time and place and, you know, their philosophy, their iconoclasm, iconoclasm, their, you know, their, their individualism, their seeking of the truth. Um, it, it's just so, it, it's just so fascinating. And, you know, I wanted to say thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. My uh, I'll leave you with an interesting statement from Mike. Okay. He said, you know, the conformist says, I believe it because everyone else believes it. The nonconformist says, I don't believe it because everyone else believes it. He says, but that rare third person, the individualist says, I believe it because I can see for myself the reasons that it's true. And in that respect, uh, I wish you and your listeners to be individualists. Powerful, absolutely powerful. Um, I gotta tell you, um, I hope you'll come back, John, because actually there's so much more I wanted to ask you. And it would, I would love to do another episode uh, where we get into Arthur Jones, Nautilus, the Colorado experiment, yeah, and all of that stuff. I'd love to do a show about that if you're up for it in the future. Up to, yeah. And it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Lawrence. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. And where, it, you know, if our fans want to learn more about you, your, you know, you've got the documentaries, the books, also the the, the books on training as well. If anyone wants to understand the Mike Menser style of training you know, you're, you're the author of it, right? So where can, where can anyone uh, learn more about you and your work? I don't, you know, I don't have designated web pages for any of the things I've created because they were always things that were done out of interest at the moment that I did them okay. and on to something else. And so I don't really bang the, bang the drum very much. Most of my products or books or films are available through Amazon, for example, or um, any retail outlet that sells books or videos. So uh, if okay, people are that interested, you can go to the trouble. I thank you for that. But um, <laughs> apart from that, I don't really have much to tell you. Well, that's, that, that's all right. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure, John. It's so, so informative and, uh, you know, just quite a conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you, Lawrence. Pleasure to speak with you, despite the weather. Yeah. <laughs> you take care, John. You too.